Welcome to the dignity of suffering. Have you ever been brought to your knees by the challenges of life? What if you could enter the world of the therapist, be a fly on the wall, and hear their stories and insights into life's biggest challenges? Discovering a place to learn from the experiences of others who've tried to find dignity in their suffering. Each week, Mitchell Smolkin takes a candid look at the trials and tribulations of being alive. Mitchell is a registered psychotherapist, author and speaker. He hopes to show that slowing down and becoming curious about our human experience can enrich our perspectives and plant our feet more firmly on the ground. Now, here's Mitchell. Welcome to episode 5 of The Dignity of Suffering. I had the most incredible chat with a couple that I'm going to introduce you to today. This interview epitomizes the whole reason I started this podcast. My ambivalence about how to communicate some of the most magical moments I witness as a therapist completely melted when I heard this brave and courageous couple share their story. It started when I wrote a short article that talked about the challenges couples face when one partner is dealing with a significant health challenge, such as a chronic or terminal illness. I'd like to read you the short piece I wrote. There is an amazing counterintuitive dynamic that emerges in couples when one partner may be suffering with a chronic and or terminal illness. Understandably, the caretaking partner will often take a protective stance and not want to burden their struggling partner with their concerns. Essentially, they feel guilt at the thought of overwhelming them. Over time, though, the basic need to feel supported and seen pushes through in the caretaker and can show itself as a repressed resentment, fatigue, or a general feeling of being lost. Sometimes, the relationship comes into my office in crisis when the caretaker says through much anguish, I don't know if I'm in love with you anymore, and I feel so ashamed. The most startling moment happens when I help the caretaker lean on their partner with their fears, everyday concerns, and needs. The struggling partner sits up with an incredible dignity and says, Everyone else sees me as sick. But when you lean on me and let me in, I feel like a human being, that you see me as your equal. I posted this on LinkedIn, and lo and behold, I received a touching and heartfelt reply from a woman living in California who recognized herself in this story. I will let her and her husband tell you about their lives and how they are coping with a significant change in their quality of life as a result of a serious and debilitating diagnosis. What was important for me in this interview was to hold the space for integrity of what it must mean to confront challenges like this. I wanted to emphasize how utterly normal it would be for a relationship to make attempts to protect itself from overwhelming pain, helplessness, and confusion. Julie and Ian open up about the process of realizing that something was really wrong. There is an incredible playfulness and joy that you will hear between them, and I was so fortunate to find myself in their presence. The short article I wrote focused on how understandable it is in these circumstances that the caretaking partners show a brave face. As you will hear, this is compounded by the fact that Ian is a physician and is trained to deal with hardship and illness. What can happen, though, is that the partner who is struggling misinterprets these signals of calm as not being keyed into what is actually going on. Julie opens up beautifully about this, and teases Ian a bit about his ability to be rational in the face of overwhelming emotion. I decided to help Ian talk about his fears, and if you stay to the end of the podcast, you will witness one of the most beautiful and significant aspects of couples therapy, where we invite people to share their fragility and worries. Ian does just that. 
and I'll let you hear for yourself the magic that ensues. It was an incredible lesson and reminder for me of the power of vulnerability. And if you yourself are wondering how to build bridges to your partner and your relationship, you will not want to miss the conclusion of today's episode. I hope the affection, love, and tenderness that I felt with Julie and Ian reaches into your heart and inspires you to be more open, courageous, and brave with the ones you love. Without further ado, here is my interview. So it's a real honor and pleasure to have you both with me. I want to begin our conversation by giving people a bit of context for how we connected and why you're here, which was that I wrote a post on LinkedIn, which described a kind of dynamic that can settle in in relationships when one partner is battling illness, particularly if it's a serious illness and requires a lot of medical support and also, you know, emotional support and otherwise. And what what I wrote about, which was that naturally in relationships, the partner who isn't acutely ill in the same way, or chronically ill, would naturally become a, a supporter in that regard. And what I noticed with the couples that I've worked with is that that can create what's called a kind of sometimes a protective cycle so that that partner's experience or everyday disappointments sometimes are not as easily shared or talked about. And in the work that I do as a couples therapist, when I've helped confront maybe that dynamic, organize how illness affects the couple, I've just seen this amazing transformation happen where certain doors open up and there's a dignity that is restored a bit in the partner who is sick. Because in my experience, and I can't wait to hear specifically from you and what your experience is, but at least the people that I've worked with, there's a part of them that really just wants to feel normal and to be seen as normal and just to have a, a you know conversations and have their partner lean on them in a in a kind of everyday way because that from what i've heard from people creates a kind of sense that there there's a strength and a and a normalcy to their life and you wrote to me if it's okay if i read what you wrote you know this made me cry i am set to graduate in 1 month with my ms mft degree I've been working as an MFT trainee with an amazing team since last September. I started showing symptoms almost three years ago, but we didn't know what was happening. Eventually, we found out that I have myasthenia gravis. Am I saying it correctly? Yes. Good job. (laughs) A very rare autoimmune disease. My boyfriend is a doctor, and even he missed all the signs. It's rare. And he did not want anything to be wrong with me. When I told him my diagnosis, he cried. When I was airlifted from a local hospital to a special one, he drove down to be with me. He cried. I'm home now. Someone at his work asked about me, and he cried. I have told him he needs to have fun and continue to be active, like always, even when I cannot keep up. He has chosen to stay closer to me more often. He eventually did tell me that he has been holding a lot in because he is scared, but he did not want to scare me. He feels protective over me, and I am afraid things will play out like you described. I feel protective over him and my children. I do not want to blur lines between relationships and caregiver. Thank you for your post. I will show it to him, and I am sure he and I both will be listening to your podcast, Julie. And so I guess you didn't know what you were in for when you <laughs> no. when you wrote to me. But when I read that, I also cried, and my wife was there as well. And I reached out to you, and you, Julie, and Lee, so graciously said yes to have this conversation today. And so 
I would obviously love to hear from your own voice about this, but I thought just to give people some context of how we ended up here today, I would read this. So maybe just to start, you could, in your own words, both of you maybe help me understand some of what you're going through and and maybe why what I wrote touched you in your specific circumstances, if that feels okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'll start since it's my illness. <laughs> um, yeah, almost three years ago, I started showing symptoms. Um, and it's easy to look back now and say, oh my gosh, there was a lot of stuff, but we, we didn't know. And we're a small town, so it's kind of hard to keep a, a doctor here. And since he's my... Lee is my partner. He's not, cannot really be my doctor, right? Because there's too much emotion involved. Um, so I was kind of without a doctor yeah, off and on. And it was hard. Um, and in the meantime, I kept getting these, these symptoms like the, the pitosis, where my eye just sort of closes on its own. The constant fatigue, can't um, keep up. I couldn't even stand up to do dishes. Um, I used to run six miles. I am a year and a half ago. We were scuba diving. And, you know, it just but slowly my health went downhill. And I'm gonna try to bring it up to Lee. And he's like, Oh, you're fine. Um, oh, you just out of shape. <laughs> so in the beginning, um, it was really hard when we finally got the results back that I did have just, just one aside. That's yeah. that's why I'm not her doctor. <laughs> a lot sure. of yes, he was in right. oil, so that was a well, big- yeah. yeah. And those responses I think make perfect sense, but I understand, you know, that that yeah you discovered something much more yeah um and it was hard and because i kind of felt like great now my partner's not listening to me he does not love me enough to listen to me and i've tried several times i said if i were a patient walking into your office with this symptom what would you say and he would just kind of ignore me <laughs> so so that was the beginning when but when i got the diagnosis i came to this office with him and um i told him and he he cried he um he felt I, and i felt like he hold in a lot of guilt. And my fact, I talked, we talked to a therapist last week about this and mentioned it to him. And I said, yeah, he's, um, he's just taking care of me now because he's, he feels guilty. And Chris looked, that's his, the other guy's name, looked at Lee and he says, are you taking care of her because you feel guilty or because you love her? And that was a reframe for me that I need to understand my partner does love me. And he's not just, you know, caregiving out of guilt, but that's what I'm afraid of. And it's a, it's a fear. Yeah. So. So the relationship, all of a sudden, you go from running, scuba diving, leading a relatively normal life to starting to have symptoms, and you don't even know what's going on, but you're trying to reach Lee or talk to him about it. And I think like most of us, I can relate to that, Lee, you know, it, it, you're fine. It's just this, you know, I think because we don't, you know, negative emotion or thinking about the worst, I think we all protect ourselves to some extent, you know, from that. And then when you actually found out what was wrong with you, it it really hit home. The weight of that hit home. And now as a couple, and you're, you mentioned being in couples therapy, you're, you're exploring how to hear his support uh, differently, not, not coming from a place where he feels guilty, but coming from a place where he wants to take care of you. And I know We'll go into that a little bit because you wrote about how complicated that is in terms of wanting to not blur certain lines. And this is where I think a lot of people will be touched by and also relate to to what you're talking about. Can I check in with you, Lee, a little bit? Like, what was your experience looking back when when there was that realization of what was going on? I guess I was I was surprised when the question of guilt came up because I didn't think, I still don't think that I feel guilty, Um, but maybe that's just my denial too. I don't know. (laughs) I was trying to stay out of her, you know, getting, I mean, I I do involve myself with her medical stuff sometimes, but I try to stay out of that, try to stay out of it without doing things. And, um, but like I said, sometimes when somebody isn't, doesn't seem to be following through, I'll kind of give a nudge here and there and try to something, make something happen. What was it like when you found out, I heard Julie mention that, that you cried when she was finally diagnosed. And I wonder what, what went through your head when you realized what she was confronting. Well, I was, I mean, I, I, yeah, I didn't want 
her to have any serious disease pretty much. I mean, it's just, I did not want to have her go through that. I know she's had, she's had a tough life through her whole life. No, and no, this is not about me. It's about you. <laughs> he's very logical. He's very hard to get him into his emotion state. I'm going to, ah. I'm going to pull up the crayons and make you, you start coloring. So you get to your emotion state. Well, you're, you're in very good hands with me here. And I, I respect that these are pretty, pretty big emotions that we're talking about. And I think you were saying that you, you didn't want her to have to suffer a serious illness. You know her very well. And you were alluding to the fact that she, she's already dealt with a lot in her life. And so that, that made it, it made it sting even more in some ways that this, that she was a, afflicted with this is that, is that a bit of what you were saying or i think i think that's what i was saying for the most part and again i mean yeah the eye doctor who who first suspected when she was just having the uh, eyelid drooping and she couldn't hold her eyes eyelid open for periods of time he uh wrote down myasthenia gravis probably six months ago and a year to- ago <laughs> but he's Go ahead. and and gave it to her to give to me as if I was her doctor. So she gave it to me and I said, well, you should probably give that to your doctor. You know, I don't, I said, I, I think he's over-diagnosing. I think, you know, but, um, but it was actually very astute. And I ran to him in the hospital cafeteria a couple of times. And, and so and that was, you know, I told him, I, after the diagnosis, I told him that I, I thought he was, I was very astute on his part. I see. Sorry, I'm just catching up with you both. So somebody had actually uh, caught this uh, earlier. He, yes, an ophthalmologist suspected it. And he said, and I was between doctors. And he says, oh, I think you have myasthenia gravis. And I'm like, what the heck is that? I had to look it up. I showed it to him. And he says, you don't have that. And it was on a sticky note. So I said, in my microwave, and it's out there for a long time. And I kept looking at it and I looked it up and I said, I Googled it. I'm like, I don't have it. Yeah, at least right. I don't have it. But then more symptoms kept coming up. Um, but yes, it was. A, and that's why I felt like if you don't feel guilty, you should feel guilty. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I'm harboring that a little bit resentment that you did not listen to me in the beginning or the other doctor. Sure. Yeah. So he, so the ophthalmologist ordered blood tests that came back negative, which is common for MG, but he didn't keep going because then I got another doctor. He suspected it for a different reason. And yeah. And then it just wanted to go from, it took a long time to get the diagnosis. At that, at that point she had stopped, started, it was not just the eyelids. It was um, My legs. You know, walking and, and, yeah. and we had been trying to walk. We were planning some trips and things and 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 I thought she I mean she'd been working you know 17 to 20 hours a day in in her school and work and I mean she's always had like two or three different jobs she teaches piano lessons she teaches uh you know MFG student now she's working with clients and and has a busy schedule there and has a two-hour commute each way for her uh for her job so it's uh and I thought, well, she just hasn't been exercising. She's sedentary. So we thought we'd walk some more. And- he thought we'd walk some more. I said, my legs feel like they're stuck in cement. I can't. <laughs> we have a man who's like um, 80, I don't know, 88, 89 years old. He passed me twice on the road. I said, that's it. There's something wrong with me. I'm, I, can't, I can't go. <laughs> no, it's a really, I mean, it's a great, it's a great story you're telling. And you know, if my wife were were listening right now, <laughs> you know, she would also be chuckling because that's something that's my go to very often as well is, you know, oh, you, you know, you need to be more active or and it, it strikes me that a little bit of what the three of us are kind of talking around is this kind of middle place that our life inhabits where, you know, it's difficult for us to as you said even julie it's like no i don't i don't have this you, you know like like i think that's a little bit of how these kinds of things in our lives take shape you know they start out maybe on a sticky note right and then there's mm-hmm. more symptoms or the relationship kind of bats us around a little bit and it, you know i think it it's a reminder really of also how a medical science is also very much an art you know in terms of of really having to to look at you know, what's going on and and the severity. And I think in all of us in our fields, it's hard to always, you know, we're not psychics. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I say that a lot to couples when they come and they wish, they wish they had known how to relate to each other before. 
I, I know that. And a lot of grief comes. Oh, I wish when we met we could have. And I said, well, this is how we learn, right? Nobody, nobody gives you a handbook on your first date. Says here, it's a thousand pages. Here's how to take care of me. <laughs> read, read it before we meet again. <laughs> but I, I want to go back because there's there is a very interesting layer here, right? Which is that you're a physician, Lee, and that's not true of most couples in terms of someone dealing with uh, an illness such as yours. You were saying, Lee, that it was difficult to really let in the fact that she was sick with this. And I wonder if you could help me, help us understand what is that like for a doctor to hear this? What goes through you? Because I'm assuming you have a professional knowledge that a lot of us wouldn't have. And I wonder what that's like to to understand this in a more nuanced way. What What, what was that like for you? I've had two patients in my entire life uh, who've had myasthenia gravis. The first one I had in the hospital and we all thought she had a stroke and um, it wasn't until a month or so later, you know, with normal MRIs and, and all that, that we figured out that it was myasthenia gravis. The other one is a, a patient who, I, who has it, he's got a specialist and which is another problem up here. Uh, there are no neurologists here. So it took a long time and to find someone that we could actually turn to uh, to um, get you know some of the some of the di diagnosis done, but and, and the treatment plan. In fact, just finally, either she had a hospitalization and then met the neurologist. That was a month ago, and finally got one outpatient visit with a neurologist last Friday, so three days ago, two days ago. So, so if time. I hear you right, it's rare, number one. Yes. And number two, it it's more complicated to get specialized care. And so what's that like? What was that like emotionally to realize that she has a rare illness that... Yeah. I was, I was going to say, one of, the, one of the, the second patients who regularly comes and sees me, I said, you know, my um, girlfriend's had a... Uh, you know, possible diagnosis of possible uh, myasthenia gravis. And he has it. He says, says, oh, God, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. So I'm thinking, and, and, but he he seems to be much less debilitated than Julie is right now. And so I was kind of like thinking, okay, well, that's uh, maybe he's just overstating it or things. But, uh -huh. yeah. So really layers of understanding and of coming coming to realize what this means for you both and 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 for Julie in particular. Another thing that you probably see, Julie probably sees, I, I see too, that, you know, people come in often, you know, with, you know, their diagnosis from Dr. Google and they come in and say, I'm sure I have this, I'm sure I have this <laughs> and, and always these rare things. And, and, and it's so trying to sort, sort all that out. And yeah, and, sure. You know, so, you know, I don't want people to think that, you know, well, anytime that a doctor doesn't think you have something, it's denial because this is just me. I'm, <laughs> I'm you still, you still not getting to your emotional part. That's what he's asking. He, he's, well, that's okay. Well, I, I mean, I think that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a lot of respect for the emotions that are involved, and I think we can get there together at the right time. I mean, I'm, I see it in your face. I see it in the way you talk about her. I see it when you said that you obviously care for what she's been through in her life. And I could tell that that is poignant for you to let that in. And and your comment to people that, look, it's, I mean, this is exactly what we're talking about, right? We, you know, I had a muscle spasm above my left ear the other day that I could hear in my head. And I didn't even know I had a muscle above my left ear. <laughs> and it, you know, it felt like just a regular old muscle spasm. But, you know, I was like, well, that's like, it's not cool when you hear something rhythmically beating in your head that you've never felt before. <laughs> so, I mean, I started this podcast in part because I think that what the three of us are talking about, again, are these liminal spaces in our life where things come in and things begin to change. And it takes us time, I think, to really wrap our heads around that and integrate you know, what, what's happening. And, and I think it's well documented that we very much like to have our character structures, our personality and our life 
be consistent, you know, which is why things like emigration can be so difficult because people, you know, we, we discovered looking at schizophrenia that there are neurons that only fire if you're in a particular place. And of course, we know that after the age of 30, we don't really have a lot of material left to use. So the brain's having to reuse old material. And so it can be very hard for us as older people to really develop new frameworks around our experience, right? That's why people with Alzheimer's will go back to their mother tongue or, you know, because there are these fundamental neuronal patterns that that keep us safe. And so I'm when I listen to you both, I'm just I'm listening to the kind of, you know, subtlety of what it was like in the relationship to to come to this. And then in a few minutes, we can come to perhaps look at what you both are talking about in terms of emotionally, how the relationship has has uh, handled or dealt with this. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of people will will feel a lot of empathy and understanding for some of the differences in the way that you both feel. And, and certainly, I can see how much you care for each other. I, I don't know that you've given maybe a definition of what you have, and maybe a lot of people don't know, so they don't run to Dr. Google. Oh, yeah. Would it, would it be okay just to either of you or together to share a bit about what this illness is? Um, yes. So uh, a lot of people just have what's called ocular myasthenia gravis, and that's where you get the toasts of, you know, the eyelid droops. And that was hard for me. And I'm going to back up a minute. My, I kept telling me my eyelids are falling. And he goes, what do you mean your eyelids are falling? I'm like, well, it just sort of, you know, it drops. Well, it's called ptosis. It's, it's more like droopy. But for me, when I feel it, it just feels like my whole eye is closing. So I guess I wasn't describing it in a way that a doctor could understand very well. Or maybe your doctor just didn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or maybe my doctor didn't understand. Yeah. But, um, but, and so some people, that's all they have for myasthenia gravis. Um, but if you, I have what's called generalized myasthenia gravis, which is so it's my eyes and my entire body. And I'm and now in a wheelchair. Um, so my condition is, is pretty bad, but not as bad as some other people. Um, I can at least talk. I can stand. I can walk a little. If you look at the, the symptoms, uh, muscle general muscle weakness is basically the big thing. Um, and it's all the um, uh, voluntary muscles. However, eventually you will sometimes go into a flare or a crisis. And that's what I was headed into. It was like an, I was an impending crisis. And that's where you don't breathe. And then, you know, the worst happens. Um, but but to kind of describe the fatigue and stuff, I'm a piano teacher. I tried to play a simple piece and it wore me out. Like within just like five minutes of playing, I had to go sit on the recliner and I couldn't catch my breath. <laughs> talking right now, I'm sorry to get out of it. So it's, I mean, it is very, um, it's not just you're a little tired. It's like you, you just don't have the strength anymore. My cell phone gets too heavy to hold. And so that's my viewpoint of the symptoms. I'm um, to, to try to relate it to normal life. And, and I guess I can explain, because you have a pretty good way of explaining it too, yeah, but, yeah, but yeah. It's, it's in the nerves, uh, where the nerves enter the muscle. Yeah. There's a connection, and that's a synapse, and there's a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine, and the acetylcholine gets secreted from the end of the nerve into the muscle, tells the muscle to contract. In her case, in myasthenia gravis, your body makes an antibody to the acetylcholine, and, and so, so the amount of acetylcholine goes, goes down, so it prevents that connection. One of the medicine, well, the medicine that right now that she's taking blocks an enzyme that breaks down the acetylcholine. So it increases the amount of acetylcholine because it doesn't break down and get reabsorbed as much. So that's kind of how the medicine works also. But so, so it doesn't affect the brain because there's not, in spite of people being called muscle heads, there is no <laughs> muscle inside your brain. And, and so that, so yeah. it doesn't affect your brain, your thinking. Um, uh, although you did say there's some people complain of a foggy, foggy brain. Well, yeah, but, uh, yeah, because your body's so fatigued, it's hard to concentrate, you know? Yeah. But mostly, that's why it's mostly, mostly muscles and, um, unlike some of the other, uh, Got it. Well, it's probably. Well, yeah, let me add something. It's called myasthenia gravis, which is, I mean, it's like a, a grave disease. Um, I think they just, I think it was like somewhere between four or five, 600 years ago it was discovered, but it really wasn't, um, paid attention to till about a hundred years ago, hundred years ago, if you had this, you die, you, that's it. So I'm just thankful. Like at least now we have some, some kind of treatments. Sure. That's very helpful. 
So it really starts to involve a, a loss of control physically. Yeah, we, we, yeah weakness. Like um, if I were to stand up right now, you'd, my head kind of falls over. And like I lean back on my chair just because I can't hold my head up anymore. Or I'll sit like this. <laughs> and how long have you been in a wheelchair for? Um, since I got out of the hospital, um, I guess about a month. Um, before, it, yeah, it was hard to, um, I was kind of, one of my colleagues at work saw me try to stand and he said, uh, you look bent because <laughs> I was just kind of, I couldn't hold my body up anymore. The, mo the most noticeable is when she can't hold her head up or her, her neck, her neck just collapses and her head just sits like this. And that oftentimes, because she has had to be doing her piano teaching on Zoom because of COVID. And so to do that, she has to get in this odd contortion to be able to show her piano key, show herself and talk to the students and things. So she had no, no neck support. That was the day that she actually had her flare so badly when she was choking on water, choking on pills. Yeah, you can't swallow, you can't really even swallow water um, or applesauce, like you choke. Um, it, it affects, yeah, your the, even the swallowing muscles. So that was the day that we called 911. Yeah. And, and she got taken down to the emergency room. She had a little, they have a connection to a robot neurologist that comes up out of Sacramento uh, two hours away. And uh, but it, you know, so that and talked to her and said, you better uh, come down here. So then they spent the rest of the night, nine hours, looking for a, a bed in a hospital that has a, a, a neuro ICU. Right, by the time that, um, I look like I had a stroke, kind of like uh, his other patient. Yes, patient. Yeah, your, your face just sort of, you know. Not being able to swallow, calling 911, and having to see a robot neurologist. Wow. What an incredible story. I wanted to give Julie and Ian the space to talk about the reality of what they have been dealing with. When we come back, we dive into the relationship and Julie and Ian take the most incredible emotional risks with each other and talk openly about their fears. I wanted to take a brief pause to encourage you to sign up for my exclusive interview with Dr. Gabor Mate on June 3rd. If you know his work, then you'll understand why I am so excited. If you are not familiar with him, you are in for a treat. He is one of the brightest and most compassionate teachers alive today. You can sign up at mitchellsmolkin.com, and I look forward to seeing you there. If you are enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, rate it, and share it with your friends. That goes a long way to getting the word out. Lastly, nothing gives me greater pleasure than bringing these moving and heartfelt interviews to you. If you believe this content is worthwhile, I encourage you to support the podcast in any way you can. By making a one-time donation, you can find the link on my website, mitchellsmolkin.com. Now, back to my interview with Julie and Ian. Going back to the whole reason that we ended up connecting, I mean, this, this has been a seismic shift in, in your life, like your relationship to your body, the relationship to what you can do. It sounds like you're caught off guard uh, by the development yes. of symptoms, and it, it also sounds like you've had some really scary moments yes. to try to reach out to get support. and. It also sounds like the two of you, I mean, there's an incredible gentleness and levity and a humor between you two. It look, looks like you're very lucky to have each other. Yes. And I also hear that there's a bit of playfulness around how the emotions get expressed <laughs> yes. and how, I guess, some of the helplessness, that's my language, so you can correct me, but some of the reaches for uh, comfort, starting originally with when the symptoms started, uh, how that, you know, looking back at how that kind of played out and eventually you sort of came to the place you're in. So if I can go back a sec, I mean, Julie, you were, you got a bit playful and you were sort of saying that, you know, he should, he should feel guilty. 
uh, because uh, your when you were realizing that something was wrong, there was a dance that started between you two, and I think a lot of us, like I said, could relate to this. You know, where Lee was sure this was something maybe just about being more more fit and taking care of yourself. Um, but can I slow that down a bit? I mean, it sounds like, and you're being a bit playful with him to kind of show his emotions. And I wonder, what does that look like in the relationship when you're knocking on his door for comfort? What, what does that look like when when you're looking to him? Um, it has been frustrating at times. Um, and, uh, you know, he's like Mr. Spock, right? Or, I mean, uh, I mean uh, Mr. Uh, Star Trek. Star Trek, I'm sorry. Yeah. The, no. so, so Spock from Star Trek, he's like Mr. No Emotion. Um, it's hard um, to get to his feelings. But like, what do you really feel? And he'll start mm-hmm. asking, like, no, stop. I want to know what you're feeling, not what you're thinking. Um, you know, being a therapist myself, I'm like <laughs> trying to yeah, do I can relate it. to that. Yeah, yes. Um, um, and he, he goes all around and I have to, you know, loop him in, spiral him into what you he do. Means. a bit of a Leonard Nimoy. Uh, <laughs> have you heard that before? Is that? <laughs> yeah, a little longer Yes. So, yes. And that actually started, that started when I, when I, I watched the initial first Star Trek's out in, in the 1960s. That was my aspiration to be like Spock. Yes, yeah, he's Doctor Spock. Just, so, so those are probably the only neurons that are left in my little brain. <laughs> is is that true? When you were younger, you you had an affinity for him as a yes. character, and huh? Yeah. Interesting. Well, the thing that I love to to say is that you know, I think we all have our superpowers in life and in relationships, and exactly to your point you know that early in our life we make promises to ourselves or we model ourselves after people we see or we want to develop our intellects and but i'm also aware just to slow this down a little bit because this is i think a little bit of what resonated with you and and some of the work that i do and certainly what i try to live by and emulate in in my marriage when i have my head screwed on straight <laughs> is that there's a there's a lot you know, illness creates a lot of need, right? It 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 can turn the tap on in terms of our uh, longings for comfort and affection. And you're a therapist; you just referenced, and you, sometimes you're knocking on his door, saying, "Hey, stop the Leonard Nimoy act, <laughs> Doctor Spock. I I want to feel something." And that's one of your ways of maybe letting him know that you want to slow things down or get uh, have a bit of a more emotional connection. Is that what I'm understanding? Or yes, yes, actually, um, I have felt ignored for almost three years as far as the MG symptoms. And when he cried, he later said, "I'm sorry, I cried or something." I said, "You know, I needed to see that. Mm. I needed to know that you felt something. I needed to know that you cared." Mm. And um, the fact that you cried really um this showed me. So even though he was denying his emotions, I felt like um his body finally said, "I've had it. This is it. I'm this. Is, I'm at my breaking point." Yeah, when the and, pain and the reality yes. kind of when the cup spilled over, you're saying to see you to see you cry. It it. It hooks you into his emotional life, and it it's it's reassuring in some ways to know. Can I check in with Lee a bit about that? Just to what is it? What is it like when she knocks on your door? Or what what is it like to be in love with a woman who you're seeing, who's now in a wheelchair, and you've obviously seen her body fail i guess i don't know if that's the right terminology but but sort of her muscular system not be able to function to hold her head up and do what she loves what what is it like for you when she knocks on your door and reaches to you what happens i feel um needed i guess i mean i think all three of us have gone into care i mean you know uh, i caregiving kind of professions and so there's there's part of me that really wants to be be there for her and and her and support her and so that so i've kind of so i've 
so I have so I feel gratified part yeah when she when she asks for help she also has helped me to find emotions mm-hmm. you know um by three of us you meant the three of us like that we're all in the, got it in the yeah. caregiving profession yeah, yeah that makes yeah. sense so a part of you a part of you feels like you can you know gratified that you can be there for her what is it like emotionally to take in when you see her struggling or she's knocking what is it like to process that what happens in your body when you see that she's really struggling do you know um if it's if she's really struggling i get scared uh-huh you know, you know i'm i'm you know i don't want to think i don't want to to uh uh progress she um what sometimes scares me more is when she decides to do something herself when she really when her body isn't really able to do that at that time because i'm afraid she's gonna you know that she's gonna either hurt herself or wear herself out for the rest of the day and not be able to uh do anything so i and so i so I, get, I get afraid i get afraid from that what does lee do when he's scared how do you deal with how would somebody know that you're afraid um can you tell when I'm afraid? Um, yeah, you kind of panic a little. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a doctor. I don't panic. <laughs> He's a step into my office, doctor. <laughs> that, that is that is true. I don't multitask either. Yeah. Is that though? I think is that is that part of? I know you just made a joke. I'm a doctor. I don't panic. But is that is that part of your training to learn? to cope with a, a high degree of uh, uncertainty or fear or in the face of working with people that are severely ill? Is that part yeah, of... Well, I was told in the past by a therapist that doctors uh, are traditional, I mean, you know, typically don't, are not in touch with their emotions. And, and this particular therapist ended up getting really frustrated with me because I didn't really understand his question when he asked how I was feeling. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, and I always gave the wrong answers. And, and, and this was your therapist. This is, this is, you were in therapy. A long time ago, he was young. And, and I found another therapist who taught me, she didn't say, you know, how am I feeling? She said, Pay attention to what part of your body. And I heard you say a little bit of that too. You know, what part of your stomach and your chest and things. And she kind of helped me helped me identify body parts with with emotions. And that actually kind of sure. has helped. And yeah. she's, she's done some of that with me also. And she's also helped me because I've, I've had some stress off and on at work. And I normally would not want to burden her with that. And so I don't. And then she asked me about it and she pulls it out of me and and um and she seems to feel better yeah well that's really no that's great that you're sharing that that's really important can can i slow that down is that okay what you just shared that there's two big parts there one is that and, and good for you that you found a space in your life to be curious about or reflect on um how you process fear you know i i like to think that we all you know, we all have inferior muscles in our life, right? We all have muscles that are strong and we've honed and that helps us professionally and helps us go out the door in the morning and just feel a cohesive sense of who we are. And then I think that relationships actually, for me at least, they're often a place I think that certainly challenge us to have to work on, you know, you can't really hide in relationships, right? Like it's really, I feel like they're floodlights on our emotions and you were opening up, Lee, and saying that you you know it helped it helped to kind of identify parts of your body that were related to to how you felt to name it, but also that in your dance, Julie will you know you said something like you don't want to burden her with your stress at work. She'll notice it and she'll ask you about it, and then when you open up about it and you kind of laughed, and I think a lot of people are very confused by this. You laughed and said, "Well, somehow it makes her feel better." And I wonder if you could share a bit more the fear, the voice inside of you, when you say to yourself, "I don't like, I don't want to burden her." Can you say more about that? What What do you say to yourself when you are overwhelmed or struggling? Like, what 
What happens, do you suppose? I guess a feeling that I should just be able to uh, deal with it myself if I'm feeling. I mean, I, I this is kind of a, an aside a little bit. I don't call myself a Buddhist, but I train in Soto Zen. And so I call it training, do a lot of meditating and things and try to follow some of those practices, which kind of follow a middle road and you don't get too caught up in, in or just don't act on some of the emotions that you might feel, um, which is, it's been helpful for me with all this. Sure. But I, but sometimes I wonder if it's, uh, no, it's not. Actually, I, I take that back. It's, that doesn't have anything to do with my not expressing emotions, it, yeah, because that's natural for me to not express emotions because I don't. Well, it's interesting. In my my interview with Dr. Sean Smith, we talk about that. He, you know, he's he's a very uh, devoted practitioner of Buddhism. Meditates two hours a day, and he also sees a therapist once a week. And so, in I, I sort of asked him directly how he reconciles a kind of radical, you know, Indian philosophy that has to do with, you know, uh, getting some distance from our kind of everyday emotions with this other kind of parallel process of staying with and being curious about our emotions. And the, the answer isn't so clear in my mind, but for intimacy, you know, what I see and even sitting here with you both, it makes a lot of sense that what you're sharing about not wanting to burden her that there's a part of you that kicks in and says, I, I should be able to somehow work this out, whether it's through your own meditative practice or or having your own philosophies about, you know, that I think we all, you know, we all try to find what we can to feel better. I, I wonder if I can go back though, just to stay here a little longer. So you were saying that that it's there's a part of you that doesn't want to put that on her plate because because you can see that she's already dealing with a lot, is that a part of it, or can you help me there? Is that what what happens inside, or even even before this illness, it was just it was kind of just my nature to keep things. I, I again, I guess another example I can give is when I was uh, back when I was delivering babies, I was always checking, making sure, looking, worrying about all the bad things, most of the time it goes great. Everything's wonderful. You know, 5% of the time it doesn't go great. And I was always looking to make sure that I don't miss something, something starting to happen, something bad to happen. And, and at the same time, I would, I would, I made a point of always being very happy and positive around the um, pregnant mother yeah. and never shared with her any of the things that I was worried about, yes. you know, just check for them. And, and so, and that came really naturally to me. And I think that's sort of my natural it, but I'd say it's magnified um, if there's a problem with me. He, it's sure. more magnified that he's sure. going to shield you from his issues. Sure. And that, that, was on, that was what was on the tip of my tongue, that it's yeah. amazing how our personal relationships then all of a sudden come in and, and challenge us in a wholly different way, where as a physician delivering a woman's baby, there's this kind of, uh, you're holding all these balls in the air, you know, and you're, you're trying to manage those things to create a safe space for her to, to, to give birth, to feel safe, to not panic. But something about your intimacy, something about when you see Julie, it, you care about her. And it, like you said, it's scary. It's scary to see her struggle and it's difficult to see her even then try to take care of herself on her own. It's a whole other layer of fear. And Julie, I wonder what happens when he talks about that or he opens up that it is scary for him. And, you know, he's aware that through his training, that's a, something that he learned how to manage. The, but with you, it's genuine. You know, it it can be difficult to see you sometimes, and he doesn't, and Lee, you can jump in if I'm getting this wrong, but it doesn't come all that naturally to talk about his fear in part because he's, you know, really learned in a professional context and also growing up, you know, modeled himself a little bit to to be able, you know, to manage these things. And what is it like to be next to him right now when you look at him and he says, hey, I can, I get scared. 
I wonder what happens to you when he opens up a bit about that. When he does, it makes me feel better. That's when I feel most connected with him. Hmm. Um, yeah, we've been together like um, seven over, over seven years. Yeah, you know, it took me a long time to really uh, figure out how to get to his emotional side because he keeps it well protected. Of course. So and how do you know? How do you know when you feel better when you look at him right now in the room, in this mm-hmm. conversation, and he opens up and he says, "Hey, you know, I'm." I realize that maybe it isn't the easiest for me to show my cards. In other circumstances, what's required of me is to keep them close to my chest. But that with you, it can be difficult. How do you know when you feel better, Julie? How does your body tell you that you feel better? Um, I get like a, I, it's a, a good fullness up in my chest. He kind of stops trying to talk. And he kind of lets go for a second, and I can feel his the shift in his body. But when I pull him to me, and he just kind of slumps into me. You can really and feel it, a closeness. Yes, yes it's like um, you're caring for a small child. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he yes, because small. I think he, he, he has yeah. he has protected himself for so long. I mean, he cares. He's had patients for over thirty years. Right, he watches the family. Um, he gets close to them, but he has to be careful about how close he is because you know. Of he, course. That, yeah, so they pass away, and um, I wish people could see you right now. You know, you you reach out for him, you touched your chest, you put your arm around his shoulder, and and Lee, I wonder, <laughs> you know, I wonder if you could imagine turning to her right now, looking her in the eyes, and telling her what you told me that you said, look, I, on the one hand, I'm so used to keeping my fear inside, especially when I'm taking care of others. But with you, when, when I see you really struggling, it's true. I, uh, I'm afraid. Could you imagine telling her that looking at her and telling her? Yeah. You have to to say it. I have to say it. (laughs) I do. I'm, I worry about you. Yeah. But did you my, tell her I get scared? I get scared for you. Yeah. What's it like to tell her that? What happens in your body, Lee, when you tell her that you get scared? That's kind of a it's I mean it's kinda of actually kind of a release. It's yeah. Uh, yeah. It's beautiful how you went in and kissed her and Hold her. Well, no, it's amazing how the body does that so naturally. What's that like when he looks at you and tells you he gets scared for you and he worries and his whole body comes in close, Julie? Like you feel the shift in him where I, like I said, he just sort of relaxes. Yeah. The muscles are not so tense. And, and I can tell he's holding back his emotions because I can see his face feeling close right now. Yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> He's, he's trying hard. Yeah. And what's that, that like? Uh, I mean... Trying hard not to really show how you're really feeling. Yeah. Well, this happens in degrees, right? Emotions are not this black and white binary process, but I think all of us show them in, in the ways that we can, and I certainly see you both taking a huge risk. And I wonder what happens when he looks at you and says, I'm afraid. What's that like, Julie, when he tells you that so directly? No, I kind of want to know exactly what he's afraid of. Uh-huh. Yeah. And when he leans in and kisses you, what happens when he leans in and brings himself close? And I feel a little bit more um, secure. And honestly, that was part of my worry with this. Like, oh, great, he's going to be embarrassed. His partner can't talk right anymore. She's in a wheelchair. She can't do anything. And, you know, um, uh, yeah, I kind of felt I was going to be somehow cut off or something or left behind. Huh. Yeah. And at the same time, I'm telling him, go have fun, you know, go out with your friends, go running, go to dinner. But that's (laughs) fascinating what you said. Something about him letting you in, telling you he's afraid, kissing you, bringing himself close. Some voice inside of you says, you know what? This. This actually helps me feel more secure to know, to hear what the the place that I hold inside of you 
to, to know to know how much this occupies inside of you and to feel you come close to me. It just because you're saying I got worried that this that that this would lead to to maybe you being embarrassed by me and that's scary. Yeah. Yes. But something about him, I think as you're saying, seeing his whole body relax and him let you in, it reassures you somewhere. Is that what you're saying? Or Yes, yes. Could you tell him what he's doing for you when he lets you in like that? Could you tell him? Yes. That's when that's when I feel like we're the very closest. Because I can feel that you're not protecting your emotions anymore. You're, you're willing to be like emotionally naked with me, but you, um, you know, you show. That's how you show you really care. What's it like to do that for her, Lee? What's it like to reassure her that she's not this sick person that you're embarrassed by, but rather you, uh, yeah, you care so much for her, and it's hard, and it. It just helps her feel closer to you. What's it like to do that for her when you look at her there? It feels good. It feels good to be, you know, to be her partner. Yeah. You don't mind reassuring her and making her feel more secure? That's okay? Well, if I have to tell her I'm scared all the time, that's that's right. (laughs) 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 Yeah, a lot of people say that, right? It's like, no, can't, you know... Can't do this always. But what's it like to do it right now to see her tear up and to move her like this and just to reach her there and for her to really see that she means the world to you and that's why you get scared? What's it like when you can actually do that in the moment? That makes me feel closer to her. Yeah. And and, and I do feel myself relaxing and I do. um, yeah, it makes you feel closer. I mean, in certain ways. Can you tell her that? Just, can you tell her what it does? Yes. <laughs> it does make me feel real close to you. Yeah. I wish everyone could see you two right now. <laughs> it's true. What's that like to hear that it, may, it, it also really helps him to reassure you? And what's it like for him to look you in the eyes and tell you that it makes him feel closer to you too? Yeah. Yeah, it makes me feel more secure in our relationship. Um, you know, it's the he he's he looks at me and he I can see in his eyes that he loves me. Yeah. Um and it's um you know, trying to put MG aside that um he's my partner, he's my team. I am we we work against you know, MG is a thing. It's not necessarily defines me. Yeah. And we, you know, it's it's the monster out there that we we he's teamed up with me and he's my support for. Yeah, it. it's amazing what you just said. Yes. That's something about this kind of crucible of your affection, of your partnership, of your closeness. It's almost as if when you said that, that the MG kind of like it's a bit further away. It's like this is the two of you are in here together, and that's reassuring for you because it doesn't. It doesn't overpower or take away from you what really matters, which is a sense of your own uh, comfort and support and relationship. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that he still um, you know, he, he still loves me. He uh, looks at me. It's, it's difficult. You're an adult. You go up in public and you're in a wheelchair, and people just sort of assume that you um, your cognitive abilities are just as bad as your physical abilities. Mm-hmm. They don't really talk to you. They'll talk to your partner about you. While you're sitting there in the chair, <laughs> like "Hello, I'm down here. <laughs> you, um, I can hear you." <laughs> um, but he has not um, made me feel like that at all. Yeah. He makes me feel like I'm, I'm his equal, um, and that's important. I'm very touched, and I'm I'm learning a lot. I'm happy that you shared that. You know, doing this podcast, and I can't quite explain it, but it's it's made me a softer person in some ways. I don't know. Why, but certainly hearing your story and hearing you open up about that. And my last question, Lee, is I wonder what it's like for you to hear that this just helps this just helps make the MG seem like it's a bit further away for her, that it doesn't define her. What's it like to do that for her in her life? That she really said that you've been uh, such a source of strength for her in that regard? Um Emotionally, it makes me feel, I mean, that's what I'm trying to 
I'm trying to do that also. I want to have her do that. And, and I mean, I mean, going back to my more comfortable logical side, you know, we, you know, we're doing things, you know, um, she doesn't go out as much because she can't, but without some help, but we're trying to go out more, go out, go out to eat, go see people. When, when I first was pushing her in her wheelchair, there was a work event. There was a group of people we were going over to talk to. So, I, so <laughs> this is funny. So, so I wheeled her over to this group of people and I put her right in the middle of the group of people and we started talking, but I hadn't realized that she said, Lee, you put me up facing the wall. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's learning. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So everybody had a good laugh about that. Yeah, we go to the store, and he's like, "What do you think about this?" I'm like, "I have no idea." I, I can't see back. it. I'm down here. Pull me back. <laughs> you are. You're both an inspiration to to all of us to find a way to be together. And I'm not. I don't want to make it simplistic. You know that that what I understood today and what a big part of what I do is, and to your question earlier, Lee, when you said, "Look, I don't," you know, somehow when I talk about my fears, you know, she she feels better, and nothing nothing is more consistent or predictable in my work and in my marriage. You know, I sat down with my wife on the edge of the bed yesterday to talk about some stuff that was frustrating me and literally within 10 minutes I'm I'm in tears because we've also learned we've had to learn how to slow things down and and try and get underneath things and like you said Lee it's it's when you can actually get to what you're feeling it is a huge release and what's interesting about the brain is that most most of our brain is designed to be antisocial, whether it's the part of our brain that controls our involuntary muscles, right? Like blood pressure and, you know, to make sure that if something threatening is coming or our limbic system, you know, the more finer emotional parts that go into fight or flight. And, and most of that is triggered by overwhelming pain and fear and situations. And so that's why often we can come across as a bit defensive, cerebral, because there is such a strong part of us that wants to remain in control. And I think all of us in our relationships go into that mode, whether it's, hey, you should exercise more, or what are you doing? Or, you know, we try and think about it. But there's something, and I just saw it happen with the two of you, where when we come across, when we show our helplessness, when we embody our fear, the other person's brain really sees us three-dimensionally, sees how much they matter. Like something, like you said, Julie, like it, it, and it happens in the cells, right? What did you say to him? Look, your whole body softens, which is really interesting, right? Our skin literally softens. Our earlobes actually relax so we can actually hear. Our earlobes actually tend to shrink if we start getting stressed because they want to protect us from hearing loss so they can measure that. And so literally in, in the physical body, and that happens on all these subtle levels, right? And so all of a sudden, Julie, it's like you, you have this full person in front of you who cares about you, and it's in his fragility almost, I think what you were saying, in his fragility and the risk he's taking to let you into his fears that you, you actually start to see really just how much you matter to him. Yes. And then what did you say? You touched your heart and you said, you know... I, I don't have to worry. I can see how affected you are by me, which is interesting because if we're working so hard to be unaffected by something, trained as a physician, right? Trained as a doctor, I don't, right? I can't be affected by this because I have to take care of you. That might work in a professional context. Mm -hmm. But if you think about it for intimacy, it's amazing why, you know, the, 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 it makes so much sense why that would go so wrong. Yes. Right, because the brain is saying, "Oh, you look completely unaffected," and I'm, you know, really struggling over here. And so that subtleness, and and I just seeing seeing your courage, I think, Julie, it helps you. And then, I love what you said, Lee. It actually gets what you want, right? You said, "Well, that's ultimately what I want is for you to feel loved and secure." And the whole the whole relationship can just slow down. There's less anxiety. I, don't, I, don't, I wish people could see it that are listening, right? The two of you for 10 minutes, 
just held it and kissed each other. And that's what happens all the time when people share their fears. That's what happened with my wife and I yesterday. You know, I went from having my back up a bit to all of a sudden holding her hand and like we were in our 20s. You know, I love you. I love you more. <laughs> we even laughed. You know, it sounded like what we were saying in our 20s, you know, and there's something. I realize our time. I wish I could stay. I wish I could talk to you all day, but I realize our time is. Uh, is up at least for the podcast, but I, I really hope that we'll stay in touch and you'll you know, let me know how you're doing because I know that people are really going to benefit from you opening up today and sharing what it's like to try to hold these fears and still let your partner in. That's that's a tricky move, I think. Yeah. So thank you for coming on. Thank you for thank having you. us, Mitch. Thank you. I wish I could have spent hours with them to watch them soften, get closer, and to see Julie's eyes when Ian talked about his fears. It was priceless. It's important to remember how much our bodies are involved with our grief and our worries. What you might have heard as I slowed things down was a softening. You could even hear the language change from a kind of joking banter about how some of the disconnection affects and divides them. Julie tries to reach for some emotional contact, and Ian tries to protect her from his fear and worry. When you turn it around, though, when Ian takes this huge risk to acknowledge that he gets scared, Julie's entire body relaxes. What an incredible comment she made, that the illness almost seems secondary to their bond. That is precisely what happens when we are let in. And Ian's comment about being confused that his fear reassures her was priceless. So many people are confused by this. But as I hope you felt and understood, it makes complete sense that when we risk like they did, we strengthen our communication and our sense of security. Please do not forget to head on over to mitchellsmolkin.com to sign up for my exclusive interview with Dr. Gabor Mate on June 3rd. We will be discussing the connection of shame and helplessness to rage, and I cannot wait to present a thinker that I have respected for decades to you. If you have not already subscribed to and rated the podcast, I encourage you to do so. It would mean the world to me. Until the next time, I remain faithfully yours.